Hi, I'm Peter Keegan. And I'm Laura Boswell. And over there we have the talented Mr B on sound. Welcome to Ask an Artist, the podcast that's designed to help you take the leap and become a working artist, the sort that actually gets to make art and pay the bills at the same time. Laura and I are both that sort of artist and we're here to help you become one too. So it's that time again when we're bravely giving up control of the podcast as we let you at home decide exactly what Peter and I are going to be talking about in this week's episode. Thank you for sending in your questions through social media and via our website at askanartistpodcast.com. So in this episode, we are going to be discussing print commissions, which easel is the best buy and how to get that writing career started. So Peter, I think the first one, I'm going to read the first question because I think that it's going to be one that you're going to answer. So, okay, okay, I'll get myself all prepared. Get yourself ready, ready, Peter. So this comes from Fiona and she's asking, as those of us in the UK are going to be stuck inside a little longer, I've made the decision to finally invest in a proper easel. But which one to get? There are so many of them. I currently work on a small tabletop easel, but it does restrict the size of paintings I work on. So do you have any recommendations on what would be the best easel to upgrade? So, Peter, this is this is not my area, so I'm going to throw that question straight to you. So, well, first of all, I want to highly commend Fiona on taking this momentous decision on buying an easel. It's I remember the very first time I bought my easel. It was one of those very big, important sort of moments <laughs> uh, of becoming an artist. Um, so well done, Fiona. I think it's fantastic. But you are right to be slightly confused and overwhelmed because there are a, a, a wide variety out there, let alone different makes and different manufacturers. So where do you start? Well, I suppose the first thing you need to do is you have to identify your needs. What are you looking for out of your easel? So of course, an easel's job is to hold your, let's say your canvas or your paper, your the thing you're working on upright. So you're able to work upright as opposed to flat on a table um, and to sort of allow it to sort of be raised or lowered according to your height, whether you wish to paint or do artwork sitting down or standing up. Essentially, that is what the job of an easel is. But then you can go one step further. Now, do you want an easel to be um, portable? So are you going, is this an easel that you're imagining throwing in the back of the car and, and traveling up the highlands as I know you do? And then you set <laughs> yeah, up your, your, easel. your easel. <laughs> not with an easel. <laughs> but are you, are you going to be one of those sort of adventurers where you take your easel under your arm and you're going to go out and going to try and capture uh, the spirit of the landscape in front of you? Or um, are you looking for a, an easel that's going to be, you know, more set in a studio and you're going to be working on canvases that are eight to 12 foot big? So identifying what you're going to need will be kind of the first point of call. Can I just ask... Do easels, can you put a tilt on an easel? I I like to work on a slope with the work sloping away from me when I'm drawing. And I just wondered if that's the same for for painters. Does that come into the questioning as well? Yeah, most easels will have the uh, the opportunity for it to be tilted. Uh, I like Uh, I like it completely flat as if, you know, you're painting with a painting hung on the wall. So sort of at that 90 degree angle. Whereas I know, for example, watercolour artists much prefer that kind of, you know, almost flat, but ever so slightly tilted. Now, again, some easels will, will, will have certain degrees of how extreme you can kind of push that tilt. Um, it tends to be the more sturdier, the bigger and the bulkier easels that will allow you uh, to do that. So um, 
I'll talk through a couple of the different options you've got available as easels. So the first thing that, that uh, and the most cost effective would be what's called a field easel. And these are very kind of small things. They're kind of, you know, a series of sticks that all bundle up. It's almost a little bit like a, one of those music stands that you put manuscript music on. So it can fold up, you know, very nicely. And it's probably no more than, I suppose, 80 centimetres long. But then if you kind of cleverly twist all the little nuts and bolts, it kind of gets bigger and bigger. And you get these three kind of wobbly legs. Um, now, you've got to be careful that when you erect this easel that no one's watching because it does look like you're waltzing with this sort of collapsed <laughs> mini giraffe with all these limbs flying over the place. And you can, uh, it's what I call the waltz of the easel. You can end up easily falling uh, down, either you or the easel on the floor. Um, but when you sort of get it, you know, fully, you know, erected and straightened up, then you have that. Now, of course, the field easel, as the name denotes, it's for taking outside. It is great for portability. It is very, very light, but it's not particularly great for heavier pieces of work. Um, it's not very good for um, large paintings either as well. One of the challenges is, of course, if you're painting outside, is if, if a gust of wind comes and then takes the canvas away, if there's no weight, that'll just fall down uh, quite easily. But if you're just looking for something to set up quietly in the corner of your studio at your home uh, every now and then, then that is sort of a good cost-effective uh, place to start. The next then is to go up a level where you're you're essentially buying a small piece of furniture, really, the bigger uh, sense of easels. And there's sort of two types. There's the sort of the H frame, and that's because of the way that the, the sort of the base of it on the floor is sort of usually set out in an H. And then it's sort of, you know, uh, upright. And that's very good. It's very kind of permanent. It's not the most flexible. You can't really move it around too much. Uh, it's a very solid piece of equipment. It's much uh, better for bigger, heavier uh, uh, paintings and larger paintings and works of art, sure. It's okay for tilting. You can't tilt it back too far, so I wouldn't recommend that for you, Laura, if you were looking for uh, for something. Mm. But if you're looking for a bigger canvas support, then that would be very good. Um, my personal favourite and the one that I uh, have most and, and, and have owned the most are what we call radial easels. And it's sort of a cross between the two. It sort of has this tripod-like of, of three legs on, on, on the floor and then kind of the main body frame that can tilt and pivot in lots of different ways. And because of the way that you release what's called the spine, the back of it, you can raise that almost to the ceiling. You could put a painting that's almost you know, 10 foot tall on it to paintings that are very small. The, uh, the benefit of this uh, radial easel is that you can paint either standing up or sitting down as well, because you can just lower the shelf, which is where the painting sits on, to kind of any level and, and uh, sort of angle that you like. So it's much more flexible uh, in what it can give you in the properties of painting. And it's not too obtrusive. It doesn't take up that much space either. So would you always recommend buying a new easel or can you get some bargain secondhand? Is there something you should look out for? Well, once you've decided what your the choice of easel, I would always, the, the thrifty one inside, the thrifty element inside me always sort of goes on eBay and see if I can find mm. a, a bargain to see if I could find that specific easel as opposed to just searching for random easels and, and hoping that it's right. Um, a, a great example was, you know, several years ago, I needed and wanted to buy, a, 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 you know, at least four or five easels, or as many as I could get for, for my art school. And um, I managed to find a lady uh, selling them on eBay and she sold what was hundreds and hundreds of pounds worth of equipment for not a lot of money because she was having a, a clear out of the studio and she didn't want them anymore. So I was doing her a favour and I, of course, paid her, but paid nothing than than what I would have paid if I, I bought them brand new. Some art shops, some independent art shops will sell easels, both new but also secondhand as well, if they are of good quality. So I'd always sort of recommend uh, uh, doing that as well. Um, 
You can buy them online if you are going to buy anything online, like most things. Wait for that uh, weekend that they have a good discount offer or a period of time where there's uh, a sale on uh, just to sort of, you know, to, to watch uh, the, the pennies come through. But once you've got an, an easel, um, you've got uh, a good uh, friend uh, for life. There's the other sort of little thing, by the way, I want to say is um, if you are thinking of being more of a plein air artist and actually going out and painting a lot more. There's a couple of little easels. They're called little pochade. There's almost like little tiny briefcases that you open. Oh, I've seen those, And these yeah. are the little easels that um, artists like Constable and uh, Turner, for example, used as sort of preliminary studies. And they are they tend to be quite small. So we're talking, you know, paintings that are maybe no more than 30 centimetres. That's sort of an A4 piece of paper, give or take. So you can't really work big. They're designed to sort of slot these wooden panels or little mini canvas boards to slot in this little mini briefcase uh, and it's very very light quite often these need to be mounted on a tripod a sort of a tripod you'd use for camera uh, or, or, or for lighting so you do need a little fastener that tends to be a little bit more technical for the more advanced you know enthusiastic uh, plein air painter um, but I have one of those and when I do you know on those rare occasions where I, I venture out of the studio into the sunlight to paint the trees uh, and, and, and the, the clouds then I will take that little uh, a pochade uh, traveling portable easel because it is you know a lot more easier uh, to take out um and there's the fieldies are the uh, it's got the what called a french easel whereas it's sort of like a briefcase and an easel all in one and you can shove all the stuff in it so it's quite good if you're if you've got muscles to carry uh, this french easel that has everything stored in it and it kind of opens up into uh, you know a, a sort of standing easel then that might be good for you as well but they are understand be a little bit more expensive and they can get weighed down quite heavily by all the stuff so look at what your needs are and once you've established what you want the most out of it then hopefully you'll be able to find the easel that does the job for you excellent so let's um let's 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 segue now into i think a question that is clearly directed for you laura uh, it's our second question and it reads i am a printmaker getting started selling my work i've been considering advertising for commissions but i'm unsure how much to charge for a commissioned print now is it okay to charge a bespoke fee and then sell an addition with each print costing less than what i charge the original client would i need to get the client's permission to sell an addition and is it okay that a print has two different price points and that has come from Katie via our website. So there's a few different questions there. Is it okay to first on taking a commission? And then how does the rights of uh, ownership of the commission, does that lie with you as the artist or the commissioner? It's an interesting question. And it's a bit of a thorny issue with printmaking, because if you are producing an edition of prints, you are producing multiples of the same image. So if somebody commissions you to do a print, then they will want what they want a view of or a person or whatever, and they want a specific image. But how does what happens to the rest of the image? So there are various ways of dealing with this. I have experience of this in the public art realm. So I produced in two two different ways, really. So I produced a series of prints of the Isle of Wight for the NHS. And the way that I did it was that the NHS commissioned me to make 14 prints for a health centre. And when it was offered to me, what I said to them was, I will charge you what I would charge to sell each of these prints. So my price for a print, as though they had walked into my studio and bought it off the wall, 
on the mm. understanding that I would then be at liberty to sell the rest of the edition of those prints at the same price to other people. So the way it worked was that the Isle of Wight got the, the NHS got a, a good deal because they were effectively not charging and not paying for a specific commission that they had to finance the whole of. What they were doing was prompting me to make a set of prints of the Isle of Wight, which I knew I could then go on and sell. And then they were buying the individual print for their use. But that was very much on the understanding that there was going to be an edition that I could sell. So I think if you're going to go down that route, then you have to be sure that the client is commissioning you to create an image which you can then sell in the general course of selling artwork. So if you are known mm -hmm. for your beautiful still lives of interiors and somebody wants you to make a print of their houseboat, you are going to have a hard time selling prints of houseboats in the general run of things. So that model doesn't... So, so would it be okay then in that instance to, to charge the client more because it will be bespoke and they would not, you would not be then selling the other editions of that print? I think in that instance, the client has to understand that they are effectively buying the whole edition, that this mm. is a piece of work which you are not going to then be able to go on and sell. So let's say it's their houseboat and it's a portrait of their houseboat. Nobody else is going to be interested in this particular boat. Then you have to say to them, well, if, if I'm going to make a print, then... It's as though you're buying a painting. It's the whole thing. Mm. What I have to admit, that's the way I I, I approach mm. it as a as a portrait artist when I take on a commission because you know when I'm painting you know a, a portrait of a family uh, or, or children that you know the the reselling point on that if I were to make some you know uh, copies or prints of it of course would be very low. No one quite rightly will be interested in, in hanging a portrait of other children potentially save you know a, a, a grandparent or two so then you know i because it is a bespoke and it's unique to them you charge accordingly whereas if he was you know if i was painting a, a bowl of fruit that someone commissioned me and i think well hang on this could potentially have more interest elsewhere then that could and should reflect in the price so that's that's fair enough what i absolutely would never do is to charge the person who's commissioning a print a premium price to own that print and then go and sell the same print to other people for a cheaper price because that's that's just not going to fly with any client Mm -hmm. The other instance where I did this, where it was with, I was working with a parish council and I designed a series of lino cut prints of different birds to go on the Grand Union Canal. Now, the actual artworks turned out to be large, uh, uh, large enamel panels that were reproductions of my prints. But again, I gave them a price that reflected that I then had the prints to sell on afterwards as greetings cards as artworks so i think it's not a commissioned print is a really really tricky one but the rule is that you need to be really clear with the client what's going to happen to the rest of the edition and make them understand that you own the copyright in the image and it is your right to turn them into greetings cards to sell the, the edition and to do other things with them. But you do have a moral duty to tell the client all that is happening. 
and then you give them a price that reflects that. Or you say to the client, you're having exclusivity for this picture and my price is higher, but it stops with you. That doesn't give mm. the client the right to create greetings cards. And indeed, if you're, if you're concerned about this sort of issue, you really need to listen to our episode on copyright, which will fill you in on all the details. So mm. be clear with the client, but don't ever sell a, a print to a client for one price and then sell the same print cheaper elsewhere. It, it will come back to bite you if you do that. Fantastic. Well, I think now is a very good point to pause for a moment to splash a little colour into the podcast. So, Peter, you're going for gold today, I hear. Absolutely. Well, I was a very lucky boy last week because I took delivery of a box of new paint supplies by Michael's team at his colour mill in South Wales. It's a bit like being presented with a box of colourful sweeties, isn't it, when all those new art Mm. materials arrive? Well, along with some of the frequently used colours that I was in need of replenishing, I asked if Michael could send me some of his latest pigments for me to play with. And the first one I want to talk about is this colour called Green Gold. Now, you've already had a go of this colour, Laura. I think it was your advice that made me kind of want to try that. You tried it of course, with your watercolours, mm-hmm. but I want to try it with the oils. Now, it is a really unique sort of green colour, something like I've never seen before. It has this sort of fresh sap-like quality to it, but then it has a warm, shimmering undertone, which gives it this gold-like tendency. Now, this is a Series 4 colour. It's a single organic pigment, and it's highly transparent. So put it to you straight away on a, a sort of an underpainting. Now, I've been doing a portrait of my wife, Kimberly, and I used it as this undercolour. And I was amazed by the subtle different colours that I was able to achieve. Now, if you lay it thinly onto the white of the canvas, it had this strong glowing golden yellow haze to it uh, which I intended to use as the underpainting but I actually decided to keep some of it remaining in the final painting. I found it also to be a really good mixer especially used with other transparent colours like uh, alizarin claret or magenta so much so that you're almost caught out thinking am I adding more than two colours because of the characteristics of this green gold it can give you so much more than just what it is. So I'm rather besotted with this magical colour and I think I've only scratched the surface of what it can offer me and my painting. So if you'd like to find out more about this fabulous green gold colour and the amazing range of paints offered by Michael Harding, you can find out all about that and where you can buy the paints at his website at michaelharding.co.uk. And now we've had our colour fix, let's get back to our questions. And our final question uh, from today is from Sally, and it's all about writing for magazines. And she says, I'm thinking about writing an article about my work and methods for an arts magazine, but how would you advise on getting a magazine or publisher's attention and making contact? I'm sure they're all very busy. So are there any key do's and don'ts? when thinking about this. Well, that's an interesting so, one, isn't this it? Is a, we know about this, don't we? Because we, we both write for <laughs> um, magazines. In fact, we, we both, you, you write a, a regular column, don't you, for Artist and Illustrator magazine? I do indeed. And you write lots of articles for various magazines, don't you, Peter? So tell me, how did you start getting magazine articles? So I'm, I'm also kind of calling to mind um, that that time where we spoke to Steve Pill, who is the mm. editor of Artist and Illustrator magazine. And, and I'd encourage Sally and anyone else interested in this to, to listen to that. And he gave a great insight. But I seem to remember that it's all about sort of proposing something to say, well, here, I've got an idea. Would this idea float with you? Um, now, as well as that, I thought, well, it's it, it's... It's very easy to say, I've got an idea to write about this, that and the other. And that's that's very different from actually writing it. So I actually took it upon myself to write an article 
before it was commissioned. I wanted to sort of write it to, to show that I could. But then you have something to show and say, look, here is a bit of it. I didn't send all of it. I think I sent about 50% of it saying, here's what I'm able to write. Is this of interest? And I thought, well, if one publisher doesn't pick it up, perhaps someone else would. And of course, that's how people write books. You know, here authors, they will write their books and they will, you know, then sort of try and get it published. They will wait for a publisher and then write it. So um, so I wrote an article and, and, and sent it out there. And inevitably, you hear nothing. <laughs> you don't hear anything back. And of course, as we both know, publishers are incredibly busy people. They are so up against the clock on deadlines and print runs and mm. uh, getting people to um, place adverts and so on. So the, I, I was I was politely persistent, um, which I think you know is is encouraged to say. You know, I, I did send something. Is this of any interest to you? By the way, I could also write something on this, that, and the other. And then very quickly, I got into an interesting dialogue where together with the publisher, we were able to craft something that worked uh, for both uh, parties. So something that I was able to write and something that was able to fit their uh, publication at a very specific point in the year, because different publishers and different magazines want to feature very specific things at very different times of the year. Um, and I think that's sort of important to, to, to bear in mind. They won't just sort of accept any old thing. Mm. Sometimes it might ha- have to hit a theme on a specific uh, time or series. So to kind of bear that in mind. So that was that's how I kind of started. And then the ball rolls. And then I kind of write periodically throughout. I sort of do, I'm not like you, I don't do a monthly thing. I will write uh, them kind of periodically. It's I often write them at good key times of the year when it's a little bit quieter in the studio. So actually this time of the year is for me quite a good time to do that, to, to be writing. And I can look back on some of the work I have produced uh, of last year and I can kind of write about it. So I find that a good time. And then I'll drip feed that into into different magazines as opposed to feeding it on a, on a, on a monthly basis. So how did it come about for you then in, a, in the, the fact that you're writing a, a regular column? Well, I think my writing really started as a blog back in the days when we wrote blogs. Um, but I was featured as a printmaker in Artists and Illustrators magazine. Steve actually was at an arts festival and he saw my work and was interested and decided to feature me in the in the magazine. So I had already sort of had an in and I thought, well, it would be really interesting to talk about the business side of being an artist, funnily enough. And it, it took me a long time to work up my nerve, but in the end, just like you, I approached the magazine and I said, here's a sample of my writing. I believe that there would be a lot of mileage in articles about sort of some of the unspoken things about being an artist. Would you be interested? And Steve, bless him, got back and said, well, yeah, send us send us a 400. Actually, I don't think it was 400 words in those days. I think it was 300 words. And we'll see what we think. And it it went from there. But I think the main thing is if you are approaching a magazine, you have to step away from seeing things through your own eyes and think about the reader that's going to read the article. It's really important to visualise your audience. What can I do for them? Am I writing to beginners? I mean, when I write for artists and illustrators, I'm very much aware of the fact that a lot of the people who read the magazine are not professional artists. 
they're not really the kind of people who are going to be worried about how to file their tax return, but they are the sort of people who want to know how to develop a style or how to be consistent in their work, things like that. So you have to think about if you're approaching a particular magazine, what is their audience? What are they going to be interested in? What level are you going to pitch at it? That kind of thing. So you can't just write a sample article and just send it out to everyone. As you say, it pays to be mm. specific. I also think as well that the a magazine editor will, will look to you know its contributors as someone that will be able to contribute and give a, a lot. And if, you're, if you've only got one article to you, or as opposed to an, a, a writer that can actually, well, I could write this and I could write these other six ideas as well for you. And I've actually written two of them already. The publisher's probably going to lean towards the one that's actually going to give great uh, value for, for, for really money and great point. content. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would sort of see this as a sort of try and have more under your belt than potentially just one thing. See what else that you could provide. I'm not saying that you won't get picked up if you have only one very good article. If it's fantastic and it's got a lot to say and a lot to offer, then of course someone is is, is highly likely to pick it up. Uh, but I suppose the, the the chances are maybe more in your favour if you've got a lot more uh, to offer and contribute. I think it's also important to, to mention as well that the, the, the magazines I've written with have been very happy to kind of collaborate in that they've suggested a few things. Could you write something on uh, stretching a canvas? Now, of course, I'd never thought about writing an article on stretching a canvas, but I thought, well, I could easily do that because I know how to do that. So, you know, I took the suggestions from the publishers on some occasions to which has stimulated articles. So I, it is a kind of a relationship. I, I never, I don't always feel it's just down to me to provide something. On occasions, they mm-hmm. have suggested and and have gaps. You know, they, they are looking to fill, you know, they've got this month, they're going to be looking at, I know, um, they're looking at colour and they want to, uh, someone to write an article on how you organise your colour palette. And that's how I ended up writing an article all about how to organise a colour palette because they wanted that specific thing uh, featured within that magazine. So there is a little bit kind of give and take and relationship between uh, the publisher on that. So I think be open to write sort of, you know, a variety of things, give them a snippet, have something already pre-written and, um, you know, be confident enough to suggest a few other things uh, that you could uh, offer to the magazine as well. Excellent. Well, I think that's, that's really helpful advice. So our takeaway as always for this episode, is please do get in touch with your own questions. We are here to answer them and we'll be answering questions in future episodes and we may even make a whole episode if the question is really good. So you can reach us at our website at askanartistpodcast.com or on all the social medias. And thank you very much for listening and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast And if you like the show, drop us a five-star rating because those really help with it.